0: This is the second sermon in the series entitled, Take Heart. The wickedness of our day is causing many to lose heart, so we want to learn how to take heart, or as the Bible says, to be courageous. And I know this is on your heart because this is the topic of most of the conversations I have with you. Now, last week we asked the question, why is wickedness growing? There are at least four possible answers. First, Romans chapter 1 says God will give a rebellious people over to a depraved mind. I think that's the best explanation. But another possibility is this is the work of the devil. It is possible that some of what we see today comes from people who are demonically oppressed or even possessed. Still another possibility is these are the final signs of the final days and Jesus' return is imminent. And then another possibility we talked about is this is simply a cycle of sin caused by sinful humanity. For example, you see that cycle in the book of Judges. So that's why wickedness is increasing. Today we want to turn to this topic, how to pray when wickedness is increasing. And I want you to find Psalm 10 in your Bible, if you would. Psalm 10. It's written by King David. We don't know the exact background of the circumstances, but we do know it was a time when wickedness was growing in verse 2 he mentions the wicked also in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 13 and verse 15 he mentions the wicked over and over again so this psalm is david's prayer during this time of wickedness we will learn much this morning about how to pray when wickedness is growing Let's read these verses, Psalm chapter, excuse me, Psalm 10, beginning in verse 1. David wrote, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And then drop down to verse 14, you have seen it and you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever. Nations have perished from his land. O oh Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline their ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the pain that we feel when wickedness is growing. In verse 1, David accuses God of hiding himself as wickedness is growing. Now, you may feel that way today. The sense that God is sometimes absent in our pain is part of the human experience, so it's helpful to know that someone like David experienced this very thing as well. No matter how you feel about a situation, always remember that God hears our prayers. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us as we pray. Those things are true regardless of how we feel. So as David sees this tidal wave of evil that seems to face no opposition, he does something that's very instructive for us. He lays out the whole problem before God in prayer. Now, if you feel like God is absent today, Lay your problems out before him and trust fully that God hears your prayer. David here could have prayed, God, you know what is happening. Please stop it. Amen. Jesus said we're not heard for our many words. But we see that David tells God the whole story. He's unburdening himself. He's rolling his burden onto the Lord. Moses prayed in great detail about his burden of trying to lead the rebellious Hebrews, Exodus 32 and Numbers 14. Nehemiah went into great detail in prayer when the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed, Nehemiah chapter 1. And the entire book of Lamentations, while it is a lament, it's Jeremiah laying out the problem before God. As David lays out his prayer before God, he gives us the depiction of a wicked world. We're going to go through these verses very quickly. Look at verse 2. He said, in pride, the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. The wicked can't live and let live. They're evilly compelled to force people to do what they want, and therefore, people are afflicted. Being afflicted means you have the inability to resist whatever is pursuing you. So in verse 3, the wicked boasts of getting his heart's desire. His plan worked. He can control other people. He's full of pride. Next, they're greedy. Verse 3, the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. With no spiritual compass, he has no guilt or compunction about swindling or crushing other people. Honesty, fairness, concern for others, that's not his concern. Third, he's godless. Verse 3. The wicked in the haughtiness of his counsel does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Next, he's successful in his wickedness. Verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. His wickedness is not hidden, yet prosperity seems to roll into his life. Next, they will not change. Verse 6, he says to himself, I will not be moved. Repentance is not in his vocabulary. Next, verse 7, he's foul-mouthed. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Now, I've heard it said that cursing is the forcible attempt of a feeble mind to express itself. That's not a bad definition. Peter ensured he would not be accused of being a Christ follower by cursing, uh, cursing our culture has coarsened to an extraordinary extent our speech is to be gracious seasoned with salt but not with cursing the same verse says the wicked are dishonest and today you and i both know that wicked politicians pundits and people will look you straight in the eye and tell you things they know are not true eighth the wicked are violent that's in verse eight he sits in the lurking places of the villages in the hiding place kills the innocent wicked people love violence bloodshed they have no problem with criminals being unprosecuted and lawlessness reigning and then number nine he does not believe God will hold him accountable that's verse 13 why has the wicked spurned God he has said to himself you will not require it proud greedy godless Successful in wickedness, unrepentant, foul-mouthed, a liar, dishonest, and violent, and believes God will never hold him accountable. David is laying out his whole case in prayer against the wickedness of his day. So take time to tell God the whole story. Unburden yourself, but... Exercise caution in so doing. Be sure you and I are not committing the same sins just in a different form. Pride refuses to recognize and confess sin. We want to live with integrity. So don't just seek to be forgiven. Seek to be free. Actively, practically free from these sins in our lives because we cannot pray against wickedness when the same sin comes from our own hand. Now, that's the depiction of the wicked, but I want you to see this next point because I think it'll be a great encouragement to you. This is the confusion of a wicked world. Look carefully at verse 4. It says, all of the wicked's thoughts are, there is no God. But now look at verse 11. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He'll never see it. Wait, which is it? Is there a no God in verse 4, yet there is a God in verse 11? If you were here last week, you'll remember that Romans 1.18 says, men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They do so because that which is known about God is evident within them. As we said last week, men deny the existence of a creator for one reason, If there is a creator, man instinctively knows he is accountable to said creator, and the rebellious heart of man prefers autonomy over accountability. So in verse 4, he says there is no God, but in verse 11, there's a God consciousness that still exists. This gives us hope for the salvation of the wicked. Romans chapter 2 says the Gentiles show the work of the law Written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. The law is a tutor that teaches us the need for a savior. The Jews had the law written on stone tablets. Gentiles have it written on their hearts. So the wicked have some knowledge of who God is and what he requires. This gives us hope to keep praying for the lost. Each one of us know people who profess unbelief, or they may say they believe in God, but there's there's no evidence that they believe in any kind of accountability, but inside they know. They They can sear their conscience, they can harden their hearts, but they cannot escape the question. It's up to us to keep bringing Jesus up and to be patient and compassionate. To make sure our walk matches our talk and to know that God can work in anyone's heart and draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the pain we feel when wickedness is growing. There is a pattern to follow when wickedness is growing. I want you to see five ways this morning. Number one, avoid what I'm going to call a fruitless frustration. Now the old adage is to hate the sin and love the sinner. We don't have the ability to love perfectly, but we can most certainly show respect, kindness, and grace despite any wickedness. That's loving our neighbor as ourselves. But do you know what else loving our neighbor means? We cannot be silent or roll over as they continue in wickedness. It is not loving. I, I beg you to hear me. It is not loving to allow a person to live unimpeded in in eternally condemnatory sin. In fact, it's not loving to allow the wicked to afflict others, verse 1, to oppress and deceive people, verse 7, to kill the innocent, verse 8. And this is where we have to take heart to draw courage from the Lord because loving our neighbor, for example, means we cannot be silent at the injustice of the taking of preborn life. We can't be silent when children and students are deceived and oppressed as is happening today or to stand by as the nuclear family is being dismantled. As one woman said to me yesterday, the family is being disintegrated. We love our neighbor by speaking truth with compassion and with mercy. Now, let me try to illustrate this in a way that I hope is is clear. No one in the world that I know of disputes that poverty is terrible. it's, it's, It's just a blight on humanity. There are differing opinions on how it should be addressed, but God has given us the best way to prevent poverty every objective statistic and subjective anecdote backs it up and it's always been true but I personally do not know of one political movement one secular organization anyone outside of Christianity who has the courage to declare what this best way is the best way to prevent poverty is the presence of a God-fearing, wife-loving, hard-working, responsible father in the home. Who will stand and say that today? We need great courage to take righteous stands because we're to love our neighbor. But verse 7 says, the mouth of the wicked is full of curses and oppression. Today that's called cancel culture. So we can't allow ourselves to be intimidated by the loud curses of the wicked, but at the same time, it will lead you to a fruitless frustration to be angry at the wicked. And here's why. Imagine you're a teacher and you're teaching a class, and no one is learning and no one cares to learn, so you decide you're going to single some of them out to motivate them. One student just is completely ignoring you. So you say, hey, student one, tell us what you've learned today. And he doesn't say a word. And you say, I'm going to remove you from this class if you don't respond. And another student says, sir, he won't say anything because he can't hear you. He's deaf. Another student is just looking off into space. And you say, student two, why aren't you looking at the whiteboard? Why aren't you looking at my handouts? You aren't even taking any notes. And he says, I can't see them. I'm blind. Still another student has his head down on his desk. At least when some of you all fall asleep, it's like this. But very few of you do that, by the way. A side note, I've got to tell a funny story. I'm, I'm not even in the ministry yet. I'm filling a pulpit at a little country church of about 10 people, and there's a woman sitting right over there, wooden pews. She fell asleep so loud, I thought it was a baseball hitting a bat. She cracked her head off that pew. I had to stop the service. We came down to make sure she was okay, and we didn't have to call an ambulance. The lesson there is, don't fall asleep in church. <laughs> Still another student has his head down on his desk, and you go to wake him up. You shake him and he falls out of his chair on the floor, he's dead. Deaf, blind, dead. That's this lost world. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus said, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. Deaf. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. Blind. And Ephesians 2 says, we're dead in our sins. Venting anger at the lost won't solve the problem. But do remember this. The blind, the deaf, and the dead are raised to life, not by our winsome witness or our righteous life. They are saved by the word of God and the spirit of God. Do not lose your confidence in this day and age in the power of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit to bring life to the dead. And proclaiming that is our primary purpose as a church. So number one, avoid a fruitless frustration. Number two avoid thinking like the wicked you'll notice that david said the wicked think that god is is far off he doesn't see and he won't do anything about the wickedness the problem is that's the way david was praying in fact that's the way the lost thought in verse one he said why do you stand far off O lord why do you hide yourself in a time of trouble but verse 11 says the wicked say god has hidden his face he'll never see it david was thinking like the wicked And he seems to recognize this as he goes through this prayer. Look at verse 14. David kind of changes his mind. He says, you have seen it, and you take it into your hand. We learn from this that strength and understanding come through praying. Because at the start of this prayer, David sees God as far off at the end He knows God will deal with it. Verse 15, he will go after every last one until they're destroyed. Verse 18, he will vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. So as you pray, both faith and understanding will grow. Avoid thinking like the wicked. Number three, pray against the wicked. I almost turned this part into a whole sermon. This is a very interesting subject, and I'm just going to give it a surface treatment. If you have a study Bible... You'll see at the top a superscription, and it will say a prayer for the overthrow of the wicked. That's what this psalm is. In fact, in verse 15, you see he says, break the arm of the wicked. That means break their power. We see these kind of prayers in Scripture. In Nehemiah chapter 4, Sanballat and Tobiah were demoralizing the Jews as they rebuilt the wall. So here's what Nehemiah prayed. Return the reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of captivity. He said, do not forgive their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out, for they demoralize the builders. In Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah prayed that God would deal with his opponents in anger. He asked God to deliver them up to the power of the sword. And then we have psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. If you've never heard that term, it's really important, imprecatory, I-M-P-R-E-C-A-T-O-R-Y. At least 20 of the psalms contain imprecations, including this. Now, what is an imprecation? It's a prayer or a statement that adversity, misfortune, or worse, will befall a person. And I see some of you taking notes, so I'll repeat that. It's a prayer or a statement that adversity, misfortune, or worse, will befall a person. The last sentence of verse 15 says, seek out his wickedness until you find none. In other words, he's saying, Lord, go after them until every last one is destroyed. Now, what do we do with this? If we use the precise meaning of the word imprecation, meaning bringing down misfortune on a person, that's not what God calls us to do in this age. But there are strong statements against the wicked in the New Testament. Peter condemned a magician named Elimus. Paul said in Galatians 1.8, or maybe it's 1.9, if any man preaches a gospel other than what he preached, he said, let them be anathema, which means let them go to hell. He wished that the Judaizers would mutilate themselves. He said the Lord will judge Alexander the coppersmith for his evil. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. In other words, let him go to hell. In Revelation, martyrs petition God to avenge their blood. So again, what do we do with this as New Testament Christians? So, When we pray against wickedness, I want to give you just a few what I'm going to call guidelines and guardrails. Number one, realize that many of our prayers already contain some level of imprecation. If you pray for the Lord Jesus to return, you're praying for the destruction of every earthly kingdom and every lost person on the planet to lose every chance at salvation. Now, obviously, that's that's not the intention of that prayer, but that's the implication of it. Secondly, these kind of prayers express a zeal for God's righteousness, honor, and triumph. They are not prayers for personal desire or personal revenge. Al Moeller said it's tempting to think imprecatory thoughts or send imprecatory greeting cards. <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't pray for revenge. Romans chapter 12 says vengeance belongs to the Lord. Number three, it is right to intercede in prayer against the evil and for the afflicted. When a dictator causes starvation among his people, it is biblical that God would remove that dictator by any means necessary. Let me just give you a raw example of this. I saw this week in North Carolina that Duke Health will start gender transitioning at two years old, UNC Health at three, and ECU Health at four. Now, here's my prayer. Lord, please stop that. The physicians, the administrators, and the parents responsible for that, please save them, change them, remove them from power, do whatever is necessary to stop this unspeakable evil. We're to pray for God's intervention and justice in healing in these situations. Another example is 1 Timothy 2. We're to pray for our leaders. What are we to pray for them? The evil they commit be successful? No. Scripture is very clear. 1 Timothy 2, 2. We pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Lord, lead them to make decisions that will leave us alone. Number four, loving our enemies doesn't come at the expense of appealing for an end to evil. For example, if someone does something to you personally, you turn the other cheek, right? But when the wicked are affecting others, then it's time to intercede. Let me try to give a personal illustration that I think will connect with a lot of you. In many vocations, if you lead in in any area, you're going to be slandered. It's that way with a pastor, it's that way in business. And when you hear slander or criticism, you just shrug it off and turn the other cheek. You try to see if there's any truth in it, and then the rest of it, you just discard it. But if what is being said affects my ability to lead or pastor, then I have to address it, because it's not just affecting me, it's affecting other people. That would be the way it is in your workplace. So when the wicked oppress and afflict other people, it's our call to go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to defend his honor and glory and to relieve and rescue those who are being afflicted. That kind of a prayer is an expression of faith in a just God. Now, there's so much more that could be said about this subject. I want to clarify, no, we don't, we're not going to pray that God break the arm of the wicked. You don't pray that kind of thing, but we, it is a call for us to intercede against wickedness. So we pray against the wicked. But then we pray for the wicked. In verse 14, David says of the wicked, you have seen it. In other words, there is a day of accountability for every person. And we're to always have concern for the eternal destiny of every person. So yes, Lord, take down the fentanyl dealer. Take down the sex trafficker, those who are rewriting scripture to justify sexual sin. Stop those who promote atheism and cultural Marxism and war and the greedy and people who bring all sorts of evil on humanity. God, remove them from power and influence and save their soul while you're doing it. Now this is a call for us to stay in battle for people's souls as much as we possibly can. I want to encourage every one of you to have a list of lost people and eliminate the sentimental idea that you might be judging someone if you pray for their salvation. You say, well, this person might be saved, but man, there's really no evidence. They say they know Jesus, but there's, there's nothing really about their life. Listen, you don't need to go through that exercise. Pray for their salvation, and if you're wrong, God will be glad to overlook that prayer but have a burden for the lost. This this should be heavy on our hearts. Let's share the love of Jesus with those around us and show them the hope and the peace that comes from a relationship with him. And as we pray, remember that you and I stood before God far more wicked than the wicked stand before us. But by the shed blood of Jesus, he forgave our sin. We want that for everyone as well. So also remember this. Jesus endured wickedness. On the cross and in his humanity, did he feel like the wicked were winning? That the father was far off, hiding in times of trouble? He said, God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, let's overlay this psalm on Jesus' life. Verse 2 the wicked hotly pursued him. Verse 4, he saw the greed in the temple courts and overturned their tables. Verse 4, they didn't believe he was God. Verse 7, they were full of curses and deceit when they crucified him. Verse 9, Judas and the chief priest lurked in a hiding place to kill him. The greatest tidal wave of wickedness in human history was when Jesus hung on that cross. Yet as the wickedness unfolded, Jesus fully trusted in the Father. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One writer said, this means you can pray this psalm with Jesus. Do you feel overwhelmed this morning by all that's happening around you? I know some of you do you feel hopeless? Maybe you feel like God is far off. I want to encourage you to pray in faith knowing that Jesus is with you and lay the whole problem out before him. And remember that wicked men put Jesus to death by nailing him to a cross, but God raised him up again. He is alive. And in his time, he will defeat all wickedness. But for now, don't lose faith in God's power to overcome evil. Also, remember that Jesus came this first time not to condemn the world, he came to save it. So, there's good news for every wicked person, and here's news for every person. Every one of us is wicked. But if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have your sins forgiven. And You can know you have eternal life. Those who hold him at bay, those who think they're not accountable, I want to tell you on the authority of God's word, you will face judgment. But God is offering grace and mercy through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this is your invitation. Right now, we want to encourage you to take that step of faith. You may be, I, I, I illustrate salvation often like this. There's a line right here. This is salvation. This is lostness. Sometimes people get right up next to the line, and they're kind of friendly with Jesus, and they know a lot about Jesus, but they've never completely put their trust in him. If that's you, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. And if you do that, or if you have questions, Pastor Kirk and Pastor Nathan or myself would love to have that conversation with you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.